Today's passage can be found in the book of Luke, uh, in chapter 18, starting at verse 31 to 43, which can be found on page 1052 of your church Bibles. So that's chapter um, 18, verses 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meanings was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he had received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Thank you, Amy, for reading. Good morning, everyone. It'll be really helpful for you to keep Luke 18 open. Um, but as we begin, why don't I pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to gather together this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being able to listen to you, the Lord of heaven and earth, speak to us in your words. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to listen to your word this morning and to apply it to our lives. For Jesus' glory we ask. Amen. There's a restaurant up in town called Don Le Noir. And the unique thing about this restaurant is that it is a dining experience that takes place in the dark, um, hence the name. As you arrive at the door, you leave all of your electronic devices in a box. You're taken into the pitch black restaurant. You can't see who's on the table next to you. You can't see what you're eating. But the whole idea behind it is that as your sight is taken, your other senses are intensified. It's a hugely popular restaurant, but I guess that's only true because people know that they're going for a temporary experience. I guess that one of the overriding feelings as you walk out of the restaurant is that of thankfulness. Thankfulness that you are able to see. Over the past few weeks in our morning services, we've been making our way through Luke's gospel. And this is a section, remember, all about the kingdom of God. The section both begins and ends with the timing. When will the kingdom of God appear? 
Jesus' answer at the start of the section was very clear. The kingdom of God will come fully and finally in the future when he returns, a day that will be obvious, sudden, and divisive. And yet he was also clear that the kingdom of God is in your midst. That's what he says in chapter 17. The kingdom of God is something that exists in the present. And over the past few weeks, we've been seeing the kinds of people who make it into the kingdom. Who enters the kingdom? Well, the kingdom's not for the proud Pharisee, but rather the humble tax collector. The kingdom is not for the proud disciple, but rather the one who receives it, like a little child. But the question that we've still got left to answer is, how? How does kingdom entry actually happen? How does it come about? Or in the words of last week's passage, how does what is impossible with man actually become possible with God's? Two things for us to see this morning. And the first is that kingdom entry comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. Kingdom entry comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 31, let's look down at it together. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. In the Old Testament, that phrase, the Son of Man, is given to an individual. An individual who is given all power and authority, all dominion, all control. And so at this point, the disciples, well, they might be quite excited. Here they are, following Jesus, the Son of Man, as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And yet the shocking thing is that he's not on his way to Jerusalem to make a political statement or to teach. He's not on his way to Jerusalem to perform a load of miracles or defeat the Romans. That's what they might have been expecting or hoping. Instead, he's going to die. Verse 31 again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. How? He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. Insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. What will it look like if everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man is going to be fulfilled? What needs to happen for everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man to be accomplished? Answer, his death and resurrection. Jesus says that everything is going to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Everything is going to be accomplished. Jesus says that as you go to Jerusalem, all the puzzle pieces come together. And it is as he goes to the cross and then is raised again. I think this corrects all sorts of wrong thinking that people have. Some people think Jesus, well, he just came as a teacher, didn't he? But if that was the case, why would Jesus say that it was his death and resurrection that achieved everything rather than his teaching? Some people think that Jesus' death is nothing more than just another example of sacrificial service that we should follow. Now, of course, Jesus' death is a great model and motivation for his people. But if it was just another example of service, why would he say that it was his death and resurrection that achieves everything? Some people think, well, Jesus' death is just a tragic accident or even a failure. But again, that cannot be the case, can it? 
Everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man, as in details written down hundreds of years before, will be fulfilled, will be accomplished through his death and resurrection. The cross is no tragic accident, no failure. Everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to and building up to this moment. The cross is at the center of God's plan. The cross was at the center as to why Jesus came to earth. And of course the reason why is because, well, it is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that anyone can enter the kingdom. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that the God who is both holy and just can let people into his kingdom. Of course, these verses pick up on the physical, the emotional pain that Jesus went through as he was crucified. Look at it again. They will mock him. They will insult him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. Physical and emotional pain. And that's before we get to the spiritual pain that Jesus faced too. As the wrath of God, the just judgment of God that you and I deserve to face for us in, was poured out on him in full. How does the humble tax collector who cries out for mercy get into the kingdom? How does the one who receives the kingdom like a little child gain entry? How does God make the impossible possible? Because Jesus Christ has been to Jerusalem to die and be raised. Kingdom entry comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. And given that that is the case, given that the only way for people to get into the kingdom is through Jesus' death and resurrection, well, we must keep those events central here in our teaching. Of course, the centrality of the cross will be offensive to many. Perhaps even offensive to those who would call themselves a Christian. And it will be tempting, won't it? It will be tempting for us to avoid teaching the cross. And yet, we can't avoid it. We must keep proclaiming it. We must keep proclaiming it with the significance that Jesus places on it and the interpretation that Jesus gives us of it. Christianity without the cross and resurrection is not Christianity. And it is useless for people. If you take away the cross, if you take away the resurrection, you're making it impossible for people to enter. The only way the kingdom will grow today is if we remain unashamed of the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. It was at the center of Jesus' mission. It was the exact reason why he came. And therefore, it must be at the center of all of our mission too. Kingdom entry comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. But as we head back into the passage, you'll notice there's a bit of an issue. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Maybe you've had that experience where you've taken one of your non-Christian friends to an event... Um, And in your mind, the speaker gave a very, very clear talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. You're excited to turn to them after the event and see what they thought. And yet it's clear that they just don't get it. That's what's going on here. The disciples, they hear about the cross, but they don't have a clue. For them, the idea that the Son of Man, the one with all power and authority, dominion and control, the idea that he's going to be killed, well, it just doesn't make any sense. 
And yet there is something else going on. It's not just the case that they don't understand. We're told that it was hidden from them. The reason they don't get it is because they're blind. They are unable to see. They are, if you like, Don Lenoir, in the dark. And therefore, if they are going to understand Jesus' death and resurrection, they need it to be revealed to them. If they're going to be able to enter the kingdom, they need their blind eyes opening. The wonderful news is that the rest of the verses shows that that's exactly what Jesus can do. Kingdom entry comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the first thing. And the second is kingdom entry comes as Jesus opens blind eyes. Kingdom entry comes as Jesus opens blind eyes. Verse 35, let's pick up the story. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked them what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Starts off as a pretty normal day for this blind beggar. You can imagine him sat down by the edge of the road, listening out for the sound of people walking past. You can imagine him hoping that he would hear the sound of money being dropped into the little bowl that's in front of him. And yet this day is different. As he's listening out, he can see a bit more noise than normal. It begins with a murmur in the distance, but then it gets louder and louder. The amount of dust starts to increase off the road as a crowd walk past. And he calls out to find out what's going on. A couple of people hear him. They come out of the crowd and they tell him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a very striking moment. David, this great king of the Old Testament, the great king of Israel, and promised from his line was the Messiah, God's chosen king. By calling out Jesus, son of David, this man is expressing faith that he believes that Jesus was that Messiah. Notice then the irony in the passage. The man who is blind sees much more than everybody else. They say Jesus of Nazareth. He says he's the Messiah. Notice too that he understands, like the tax collector did, of his need for mercy. Notice also his persistence. Those who led the way rebuked him. They tell him to be quiet. Maybe they think they're more important. Maybe they think, well, Jesus doesn't have time for blind beggars today. And yet this man knows that this is his chance. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that he needs Jesus. He's confident that Jesus can help him. And yet he also knows that Jesus is going to be gone in a few moments. And so he's not put off. He ignores them. He shouts out, all the more, son of David's. 
have mercy on me. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus asks the man one simple question, what do you want me to do for you? He gives him the simple chance to express his needs. And the man does, Lord, I want to see. The rich ruler last week had everything but saw nothing. The blind beggar this week comes to Jesus with absolutely nothing, but of course sees everything. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well, has healed you. Now, it's a wonderful story, and yet there's much more going on here than first meets the eye, pun fully intended. There is much more going on than a simple physical healing. That phrase, your faith has healed you, is very significant in Luke's gospel. It crops up all over the place, or slight variations on it crop up all over the place, all the time talking about salvation. See, in the Bible, blindness is not just used to describe a physical condition, but also a spiritual condition. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah is commissioned to go and speak to God's people, he's told by God that his message to Israel is the following. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. The message to Isaiah continues, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In response to their rebellion against him, in response to their hard hearts, God deliberately blinds eyes, not physically but spiritually. The reason why the disciples, they don't get it in verse 34, is because they are blind. And therefore, for these disciples to enter the kingdom, they need to be given sight. They need a double eye transplant, and yet that is exactly what Jesus came to do. As Andrew mentioned at the start of the service, earlier on in Luke, Jesus quotes from some words towards the end of Isaiah. Some words that promise an anointed one, an anointed one who would proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. God had promised in Isaiah, one day there will be one who comes who reverses spiritual blindness. Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he says, that's me. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who's come to bring spiritual sight to those who are blind. And of course, these verses prove it, don't they? We often think, don't we, as we read through the Gospels, well, they're just a randomly put together, just a load of random stories, but they are not. Highly structured. Incredibly significant that just after we're told that the disciples do not understand because they're blind, well, Jesus now gives sight. Highly structured. Jesus gives this man sight to show that he can give spiritual sight. The story of the blind man in Luke 18, well, it's a visual aid, if you like, of what needs to happen if someone's going to understand the gospel. It's a visual aid of what happens as someone becomes a Christian. It's a visual aid of what actually happens as someone enters the kingdom. They go from being blind to seeing. We often think, don't we, that some, some conversion stories are amazing, but most are just a little bit boring. That's what we often think. That is not true. 
every conversion story is amazing because every conversion story is a supernatural miracle. Every conversion involves a blind person receiving sight. None of this nonsense, I've got a boring story, I just grew up to church and I became a Christian. No, you were blind and you saw. Kingdom entry comes as Jesus opens blind eyes. We'll think about the main response in just a few moments, but for now I think it's worth just reflecting on some of the implications this passage has for us as we seek to share the gospel with unbelievers. We can often think, can't we? I know I can, that evangelism is all about me. I can often think that other people's salvation, well, it's dependent on my explanations and the evidence that I present. And if we think that, well, we put all sorts of pressure on ourselves. We're shy to speak in case we say the wrong thing. And we come out of conversations kicking ourselves. If only I'd said that, then they would have become a Christian. We need to remember, don't we, the spiritual condition of all unbelievers, blind. Don Lenoir. And we need to remember that we cannot, we cannot open blind eyes. However good and clear our answers might be, whatever evidence we might be able to present, we will never convert people. You might think that's discouraging. I actually think it's greatly liberating. It frees us up, doesn't it? Because we don't need to panic that we don't have all the answers. We don't need to panic that our answers appear weak. We don't need to panic when the really intelligent person doesn't understand the gospel. We might think, well, they're really intelligent. Surely they're correct. We don't need to argue back or try and be the one who shouts loudest. Instead, with compassion and grace, simply point them to Jesus and pray. We must pray because Jesus is the one who opens the eyes, not us. He did it for the disciples later on in Luke. On the road to Emmaus, he opens their hearts so that they might understand At that point, they understand that Jesus is the Son of Man. He can do it for any of our non-Christian friends and family. And of course, he can do it for any here this morning who wouldn't yet call themselves a follower of the Lord Jesus. If that is you, well, I hope that you can see that the response you need to have is exactly the response that the blind man makes in this passage. All you can do is come to Jesus and cry for mercy. That's all you can do. Ask him to open your blind eyes so that you might see. That's the only way that you will ever understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the only way you will ever enter the kingdom if you cry out for mercy. But what about for those of us who've had our eyes opened? How should we respond? Well, given that the only way that kingdom entry is possible, given that kingdom entry comes as Jesus opens blind eyes, well, I take it the only response can be that of humility that leads to praise. Humility that leads to praise. If you're a Christian believer here this morning, why are you in the kingdom? Not because of your background or status. Not because you've grown up in a Christian family. Not because you're better or more deserving. Not because you're more intelligent or wiser than your non-Christian friends not because you worked out the gospel. We're in the kingdom for no other reason than the fact that Jesus has been incredibly merciful and gracious to us. 
We're in the kingdom for no other reason than the fact that Jesus has performed a miracle on us. We were blind, and now we see. It's deeply humbling, isn't it? Before Jesus opened our eyes, we were in the dark. We had no chance in understanding the gospel for ourselves. No room for pride or arrogance for those who are in the kingdom. No one more deserving. No one works it out. Only because Jesus has opened eyes. The Christian can only really ever say, I was blind and now I see. Not me, not my understanding, not my efforts. I was blind and now I see. Deeply humbling. And yet, as we remember that, well, I think it should therefore lead us to praise God. Verse 42, let's look at these verses once more. Jesus said to him, Lord, sorry, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. That's the right response, isn't it? For the person who truly understands the gospel, for the person who's had their eyes opened to the truth, nothing will ever be the same again. No person who has truly encountered Jesus can walk away unchanged. Instead, the person who's had their eyes opened to the truth will follow Jesus. They will follow Jesus in the way of the cross, and of course they will praise God. As we realize more and more, what Jesus has done for us in opening our eyes, as we have that deeper sense of thankfulness that we are able to see, well, it should lead us to praise God for what he has done for us. As you leave the restaurant in London, Don Lenoir, an increasing sense of thankfulness that you're able to see. Let's pray that our response would be the same this morning. Lord Jesus, all we can do in response this morning is to say thank you and to praise you from the bottom of our hearts that you have been incredibly gracious and merciful to us. Thank you so much for opening our blind eyes. We ask that you would do the same for any here this morning who aren't yet yours. And of course, for our friends and family this week as we boldly proclaim Christ, help us to be dependent, and we pray that you would do miraculous things in opening blind eyes. And we pray, of course, that you would humble us and cause us to praise you. For your glory we ask. Amen.